When my world is shaking, heaven stands. Makes me wonder in light of the recent Supreme Court decision. Is our little world, our our neck of the woods shaken? By all indications, it very well may be. And yet heaven stands. Man throughout the course of history has chosen his own way and shouldn't surprise us. But so much that people's minds change about things. But heaven stands. So maybe as Americans, our course may be a little different than it was before. It may affect us a little differently, but heaven stands. So as believers, our mission hasn't changed. Our course of life hasn't changed. We are still to be a light to the darkness and followers, diehard followers of Jesus Christ. It's good to see everybody here this morning. And I'm Brad was talking about being grateful for certain things and a lot of the little things. And I think the women's conference had to do with being able to see the incredible blessings that God just lavishes upon us day after day after day. And just as a simple Act of gratitude, I want to thank the Lord for a reprieve of the humidity and the heat these past few days. It was so nice to walk outside early this morning and not just be hit with that wave like you just stepped into a sauna or something. So thank the Lord for that. We are in Ezra chapter 10. And this is actually the last chapter of the book of Ezra. So we will complete the book of Ezra. But no need to be real excited because we go into the book of Nehemiah. And basically it's a continuation of what we are already learning about. So we'll close this book today. And then after another sermon on Proverbs, we will open the book of Nehemiah and read some more of the same pertaining to God's people. So it's been a few Sundays since we've been here in Ezra. But when we left, there was something lingering in the air. And basically in chapter nine, Ezra, who has come from Babylon back into the promised land with a passion for God's word, a passion to rebuild the people of God. He hears news that there is a grievous sin. It's rampant in among Israel, and that is the sin of intermarriage. And he hears this news and he just hits the ground. And he's he's in a state of prayer. He's mourning. He's tearing at his clothes. He's pulling at his hair because he realizes that this news means that once again, the people of God are targets for God's wrath, because this was the very reason, one of the very reasons that God sent them into exile to begin with. And so he's back in the land. The remnant is there and he hears this news and it's very disheartening. And that's how chapter nine closed with him praying in this scene, just lingering in the air. And then chapter 10 picks back up with that. As we see first, the hope of prayer. Look at verse one, chapter 10 of the book of Ezra. While Ezra prayed and made confession Weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now. There is hope for Israel in spite of this. So Ezra is a broken man. 
He fears God's wrath because of this sin. And this news is this news has broken him. And it was big trouble for Israel all over again. And he can't handle it, so to speak. And so he immediately takes it to God. God, Lord, have mercy. Lord, work in us. And as he 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 displays this public affection and passion for God and he's near the temple. So it's in a public place. People begin to draw around him. He draws a crowd. And I would imagine when you see somebody in the dirt or on their knees or on their face and they're pulling their hair out, you know what that culturally means. And you hear him and his words, I would imagine, perhaps first out of curiosity, you want to get close and see what in the what is this guy so torn up about? But then as they began to hear what he was praying about, they began to join into this. And the Holy Spirit begins to fall upon hearts and bring conviction. And they also join him in weeping bitterly. So now they are also weeping with Israel, Ezra over their own sin. That's the power of prayer. And I just want to just stop and realize what has just happened in Scripture, in real life. Ezra finds himself in what by all intents and purposes is a hopeless case. People are steeped in sin. As far as we know, they don't mind it. Doesn't bother them, or at least it doesn't bother them enough to do anything about it. So what do you do in the midst of a culture where people have no desire or no will to change? It seems like a hopeless case. That's the scene before the prayer. Now, during the prayer, you have people that now are beginning to weep over their sin. What happened? Prayer. Going to God, seeking God, pouring, talking to God about what seems to be a hopeless situation. Changed the whole landscape, or at least began somebody's panic button go off of the... Or, or is my hearing aid off a little bit this morning? Don't panic. Everything's okay. Ezra was panicking. And he's pouring his heart out to God. And it begins to bring forth change. That is the hope of prayer and the power of prayer. Because before he was even finished his prayer, the Holy Spirit was, was working in hearts. And before he gets off of his knees, other people are weeping and perhaps they are on their knees over the same thing that he is praying about. That's why prayer is so important. Prayer, prayer makes prayer brings things into being, of course, in the will of God, because God brings things into being. And it's beseeching God to do that very thing. It, it doesn't just move pebbles around. It moves boulders. It moves the impossible out of the way so that the possible comes into existence. That existence. That's why we talk so much about prayer as a church. That's why we pray so much about or pray about the requests that come in. We go to God constantly in this church. And sometimes our service runs over because of prayer. That's how important it is. We did a teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is powerful. And prayer is often the trigger to the hand of God or the move of God. 
And God doesn't have to wait for us to ask him to do these things. I mean, couldn't God have just brought the spirit of conviction upon Israel without Ezra's prayer? Sure, he could have. That happens sometimes. But it was Ezra's prayer that was the trigger to this great change. Prayer is an invitation by God to his people to join in his supernatural work. So we get to ask him for things and see him work and move as a result of our prayer, which is encourages, which is encourages us, of course, to pray more. So prayer is that trigger. So here's this man. I'm thinking he's. Scholars think he's about middle aged and he is in a great state of prayer. And he reminds me a little bit of Hannah, who went to the temple because she did not have a child. She wanted a child so badly. She prayed in such a way that the priest was certain that she was under the influence of alcohol. She was in the zone, so to speak. It was just her and God. And as far as Ezra's concerned, even though he's in public, it's just he and God right now. He's not that concerned about those that are surrounding him. And the very thing that he wanted, the very thing that he is praying for begins to come into place before he even says. Or as we would say in Jesus name, amen. Now, is prayer powerful or what? If prayer did not work, if God didn't care, if God did not listen, then we pray in vain. But because God does listen, he does have a plan, he does have a will, then there is great hope in prayer. Ezra's emotional plea was used by God to plow up hearts. Well, one of the reasons that prayer is so powerful, just to keep the big picture in mind, is because when we talk Or when we pray, we are talking to the ultimate authority that is in existence. Now, an authority of the United States made a decision for all of us in the Supreme Court. They have, at least the Constitution or government, supposed to have that kind of authority. And so it is imposed upon us to that degree. You can't go any higher than that. Well, that's just the law of man. And then there's the law of God and the ways of God that is the utmost highest. And so what we are doing when we pray is we are asking the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the judge of all, the supreme ruler to make a decision that will affect all peoples. And that is what prayer does. The passionate prayers such as Ezra's can make us uncomfortable. Have you ever been in the presence of this kind of passionate prayer where somebody is just mourning? Perhaps groaning. I think last week we had a powerful time of passionate prayer where the Holy Spirit decided to do something that we didn't plan. And sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable when we when we just get in that zone with God and we are we are so focused on him and what he wants and and the desires of our hearts that perhaps we we cry or we moan and we groan. And if it's of the flesh, it's an instant turnoff. But when you see God in it, it begins to draw us in. It it begins to make us curious and draw us in. God, how do you want to use me in this moment? You're working in that person's life. How do you want to use me in this moment? By the way, I appreciate each person's obedience that played a role in last week's service, that gave a word of exhortation or just prayed a prayer for a congregation. 
I appreciate that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Do not take that for granted at all. So Ezra's pouring his heart out to God because he knows the scope or the remedy is beyond him. What's he going to do? What can he possibly do? Give people pep talks, maybe. But he goes to the source of change, and that is God. God is the remedy. And in the presence of God, there is power and might. You think about prayer. Prayer is such a mysterious thing. I mean, how many... It's mysterious. How many prayers have been uttered here this morning and we don't even know about? I know sometimes people come into this church and they pray silent prayers. Or con- they might see someone and just pray these silent prayers. It's such a mysterious, beautiful thing. It reminds me a little bit of our wireless Internet system. I mean, just think of the countless communication that is taking place right now over the wireless Internet. We have no idea what is passing through the air. Countless, countless transactions. And that's like prayer. Even now, there are countless transactions taking place between God and man because heaven stands. These transactions, divine transactions, as this communication continues, the life of prayer continues, and God hears. And answer. So heavenly transactions take place because of prayer. Maybe some of our prayers are on hold. Maybe some are on the way. They're in the air, so to speak. Maybe some are being um, answered right now. Prayer is hope. And when we see prayer like this, when we see how powerful it is, when we see that it can change things that we feel so powerless to change, then we will find ourselves on our knees, perhaps even on our face, just like Ezra. And I want to skip ahead just a little bit and look at verse 6. Ezra withdrew from before the house of God. And he went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, where where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Now, lest we think that Ezra is just showboat believer, like Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being. They had these powerful, public, showy prayer lives. But in private, there was no relationship. There was nothing. It was empty. But they loved to use their prayers as a performance. And lest we think that what Ezra has done is just a public performance to get people worked up or emotional, After this prayer in public, what does he do? He goes to a friend's chamber. He goes to his secret place and he continues to pour his heart out before God. And now he's fasting. Because though the spirit brought conviction, there still needs to be changed. It's not completed yet. There are still people in sin. There are still relationships that are existing that should not exist. And so he didn't stop at the point of conviction He continued to pray. He is still burdened because there's still work to be done. You know, prayer burdens also bring us hope. Because if we have a prayer burden, it means God is thinking about that. God's attention is on that and he's not finished with it. He's still at work. Prayer burdens are also a curious thing. You know, God can sometimes burden individuals in specific ways. So. 
This burden goes to you. I want you to carry this burden and I want you to talk to me about this and I want you to talk to me about this. And and he puts this weight on us that we don't get relief from until it's gone, until he takes it off of us. And it's a, if we have a prayer burden, it's because God cares about that particular thing. It's just another sign of hope. So as we pray, we want to be reminded of the power to change in that. We also see in this passage the hope of repentance. Again, in verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. And he says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. According to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. And then, of course, verse six, where Ezra goes into his chamber. Verse seven, and a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the return exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property property should be forfeited. And he himself banned from the congregation of exiles. So our prayers can have effect on others because of the power of God. Our prayers can do what we are not able to do in and of ourselves. And they can bring forth that change. But what about the people that are that need to change? What about those that are perhaps stuck in sin? Ezra didn't carry that sin, yet he was burdened and he repented of it. He wanted to bring forth change. But for the ones that are living in sin, where is their hope found? Well, their hope is found in repentance. Verse three, the people come before and say, let us make a covenant and put away the wives and children according to God's commandments. So they are wanting to change their ways. They're saying we have gone wrong and we want to put this away from us. But what we want to do is adopt and bring God's commandments upon us so that we might live under them. So they they wept bitterly, bitterly. They felt the weight of conviction and and they recognized that they needed change. We cannot get out from under the miserableness of sin unless we're willing to change, unless we're willing to repent. If we are if we willfully refuse the sufficient grace of God to change and repent, can we expect hope? Can we expect the change to come No. That change, that hope comes through that willingness to obey the Lord. There's no hope if they continue on that path of unrighteousness. So rather than continuing to do wrong, the hope comes in doing right through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are wanting to get back to the book. They see that that's their hope. Let's just do things the way God has written. I think in this passage we find a good example of true repentance. What does true repentance look like? True repentance has positive side and a negative side. There's things that it isn't and there are things that it is. On the negative side, true repentance is not just being sorry 
that say we've offended another person. Now, we can feel great shame and humiliation and great remorse over harm, harmful things we've done or harmful things that we have said. So why is that not true repentance? Because the spiritual element is absent. In order to have true repentance, we have to understand the spiritual effects of sin. In other words, if we have sinned against man, we have sinned against God. And so true repentance requires that we also ask God's forgiveness. We also recognize that we have sinned against him. That's why the famous prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, he says, I have not only sinned against man, but I've sinned against you, O God. Or I think he actually says, I have not sinned against man, I've sinned against you. What is he saying? Of course he sinned against man. And, And homes are broken because of it. As a matter of fact, the entire kingdom of Israel was affected by that sin. But in the big picture, what he is recognizing he has done in violating man, he has also violated the holiness of God. And he realizes that he has to get right with God because that sin has broken that relationship. So repentance isn't just on the horizontal level, it's also the vertical level that we always have to keep in mind. To sin against man is to sin against God. That's what the people say in verse 2. We've broken faith with our God. We've broken faith. It's a relationship killer. So it's not just being sorry that we have offended man, it's being sorry that we have offended a holy, holy God. Second thing it is not, it's not just those feelings of remorse. We can truly be shaken to the core over our actions of sin. I mean, they can just undo us. And think that because we feel so bad about it, that's true repentance. The classic example of this is Judas. Judas felt really bad about betraying Jesus. He felt so miserable over what he had done that he goes out and he hangs himself. Now, that is remorse. That's how bad he felt. I mean, I don't think you can feel any worse than that for something that you've done so bad that you go out and kill yourself. But remorse is not intended to be the final word or the final feeling or the final emotion. Remorse is not designed to to lead us to death. Remorse is is designed to lead us to life. Remorse without grace suffocates us. Remorse, our pain is to lead us to the cross. And so those kind of feelings without a follow through of actually asking God's forgiveness, the atoning blood of Christ is a killer. It stifles us. We breathe our own air of self-pity and we can't see a way out. We close all the doors in around us and just feel bad for ourselves. Where God's grace, that's how the relationship works. It's God's grace that can come in and give us that hope. And if we stay in remorse too long, we begin to not see that hope. And we can't figure out how to move on. How do I go on with life right now? I can't see it. Judas couldn't see how he could move on with life because he stayed in that. It was not a true repentance. You know, many of God's saints have done deplorable things. How do they move on with life? How do they continue to worship? 
It's through repentance. It's that it's recognizing their violation before God, but also recognizing the provision of God's grace. That's how we can move on when we have violated these commands. That's what keeps us going. Second Corinthians seven ten, the apostle says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Things, those burdens that is to be left behind at the cross, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what do people do without the grace of God? They just wither away. It, it literally produces death, just like it did with Judas. I hope no one here this morning is stuck in a worldly state of grief. Where they're just stifled and they don't see any way out of their troubles. And they don't see any way out of their sin. Or the path that they have taken. Because it truly is unbearable. But thanks be to God. That provision has been made for us to ask forgiveness and be forgiven. Because Christ died for our sins. Repentance is really intended, of course, remorse as well. But repentance is intended to be a positive thing. It is life sparing. It is life giving, whereas worldly remorse is life taking. And this life awaits those that are willing to come before their God and repent of their sin. It opens the door, it lets the light in, it lets the grace in. Now think about Jesus's beautiful example of the prodigal. We follow that story along. He squand he's got this great home life, loving family. He squanders it all. He goes out, makes very unwise decisions, and he finds himself at what we might call the bottom of the barrel. I mean, he is literally in the muck with the pigs, eating some of the pig's food. He's, that's how hungry he is. He wants to eat the pig slop that he is hired to feed them. And then he has this thought of repentance. What if I go back to my father? Will he accept me? If it wasn't for that thought, he would say, I am at the bottom. There's no other place to go. I might as well end it now. But he saw hope in the love of his father. And he finds his way back to the father. So what true repentance is finding your way back to the father. That's what it's all about. Finding your way back to the father. And though our pride and our sin nature resist this. It's a beautiful reunion that we do not deserve. And yet God offers us the gift of repentance. An incredible thing. So what does true repentance look like? Here's a few things that it should include. First of all, contrition. Also in the Psalms, in that same Psalm, as David prayed for forgiveness, a broken and contrite heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. The, O oh God, you will not despise. So God does want to see that that sorrow and that pain there, that contrition, the brokenness, the grief that we have offended people and that we have offended God. We see this with the people in verse one, where it says they wept bitterly. They were feeling the pain of their sin. Ezra was feeling it as well, not just for the people, but because he saw that it was offense against the holiness of God. 
Peter also felt this weight because he denied the Lord as well three times. He was a broken man. He was contrite, but he let the grace of God in his life. And he continued to serve the God even more. God even more determined than he was before. And if history is correct, never denied him again. So contrition. Also, true repentance means change. The very word for repentance is a change of direction. And so what that means is that we're going to change our thought patterns, that rhythm of life that we got into that is keeping us in the pattern of sin. We're going to change our thoughts. We're going to not go places that we used to go. And we're going to replace that with with the places that we should go. And that's what the people said. We're going to put away these things that have violated God and we're going to take on the commandments of God. We're going to live by those. John the Baptist calls it bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Isn't it interesting that repentance actually is intended to be fruit bearing? That out of our heart comes good things now. The sin is replaced with righteousness. Sin separates. Repentance resuscitates. So they said we're going to make a covenant with God and put these things behind us. So that's true repentance. True repentance isn't just feeling sorry and bad about the sin, though that's a start. True repentance is being willing to take the actions necessary to put things away from us. And that's when the change comes. Perhaps there's things in our lives that we're struggling with, a sin, maybe besetting. Maybe something that's new, maybe something that's been with us for a a long time. And we have to take the action to recognize what it is and put it away. We can't keep it around. We're not strong enough. It's too tempting. We have to get rid of it. We have to put it away and then replace it with the good things. The holy things. That's true change. And then third, I'll add, is follow through. And the reason I put that is because we have to continue. It's not a one time thing. The temptations still come. The battles still come. We have to still fight these things and stay under God's commands. Keep ourselves there. So repentance also requires a diligence and a follow through. Now, the old saints used to say, keep short accounts with God. And what they mean is when you blow it, repent right there, right then and there. Recognize it for what it is and get straight with God. Don't let sin linger. Don't scratch your head and think, I wonder what I should do. You already know what you should do. Don't keep sin around any longer than we have to. Let's be quick to repent of it so that it does not have power over us. You know, as as people, there are two ways to get right with God, to be right with God. One is to be absolutely perfect. If you are a flawless, pure individual, you have never sinned. You are perfectly holy in sight, in God's sight, then you are right with God. But since only Jesus fits that description, the other way, the rest of us to get right with God requires repentance. So when Peter's preaching to the people and they began to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they said, what must I do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Or some other places say, repent and believe. Repentance is the only way that we can get right with God, of course, in believing in Jesus Christ. We can never assume that sin takes care of itself. Sin has to be 
taken to the cross. Every time we repent, we are reminded of the judgment that we deserve that Christ took. It may be several times a day. It's a reminder of the love of God upon us. It's a reminder of the pain and and how personal sin is to God. Because talk about feeling somebody's pain. Our sins were born upon that cross. God takes care of sin through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. So repentance reminds us of the judgment that's involved. And what we we don't want to become the poster child of judgment. Who's the poster child of judgment in Scripture? In my opinion, Lot's wife would hold that title because she was warned to flee. God's wrath was coming upon the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he graciously warned his people, get out of there. I'm going to destroy it. And so Lot and his family are running. They're, I guess they're walking quickly. They're doing something because he said, make haste. Don't look back at that lifestyle. You're to put it away and take on this new life. And you can just see Lot's wife probably starting out pretty strong, really scared of God's wrath. And then just it begins. She let her she let the thoughts come into her mind. Hmm. I'm going to miss that. She begins to realize the life of sin that she's going to miss, that she was so used to indulging in. And she just I don't know what posture she was, but she looks back and freezes, becomes a pillar of salt and the poster child of God's wrath. Frozen in a a statue of longing after sin. That's how she stayed. We don't want to become the poster child of judgment. And the way we avoid that is true repentance, not becoming none, but true repentance of leaving the old behind and bringing on the new. We also find not just the hope of prayer and repentance in this passage, but the hope of reformation. Listen to the decisions that they made and how it transpired. Verse nine. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Perhaps they were a little chilly. They were shivering in fear of God's wrath, but also the rain. Ezra, the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women. And so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wise. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice. It is so we must do as you have said. But the people are many and it's a time of heavy rain and we can't. So basically they go on and on and they settle on another time to handle this just for practical purposes. They have so much time to do it. And um, there was a little dissent, but most of them agreed on this. And then verse 16, then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers, houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So they had just repented. They had agreed to walk in God's ways. Things are going to change. Now, what do you what would you call that revival or reformation? 
I would call that reformation thanks to clarification by Stan Evers. And I never really thought about this before. And I think we use the words interchangeably, but I appreciate the differences that he pointed out. He says that in revival, the supernatural element is uppermost in a mighty outpouring of the spirit of God upon his people, the church. In reformation, the human element is largely at work in taking the initiative to plan and organize in order to bring about change for the better. That clarification is helpful to me because the Holy Spirit is involved in both. But revival is more of an unexpected supernatural work of God where God just shows up and does his thing unexpectedly. And, and there's a manifestation of the spirit. And perhaps all we did was pray or ask for it or maybe we didn't even ask for it. Sometimes the spirit comes just because he wants to and he works. Whereas reformation is a little more calculated. That's when we on a human level see where we've gone wrong or see what we need to do to improve and make it right. And we implement the steps of God's word. And, and it's, it's not quite as supernatural, but it's just as glorifying to God. So we reform our ways. It's more of a man initiated thing through the Holy Spirit than just that supernatural initiation from God. So Ezra's people are choosing to reorder their lives, to reorder their community and take practical steps to see that this takes place in order to obey the commands of God. And this is why this is what we called or what happened in the 16th century. And we call it the Reformation that happened in the church. Stan Evers continues, he says, Luther initiated a movement to reform the structure of the church and to correct spiritual abuses by sound biblical teaching. That is what we have in Ezra. The leaders initiated the Reformation when they came to Ezra and informed him of the abuse of mixed marriages among the people of God, the church. Ezra, as a scribe and teacher of God's word and the law, could see that the people needed to be taught afresh. The doctrine of separation is contained in the law. And he undertook to put the necessary reforms into operation by organizing a proclamation and setting up a commission of elders and judges from each of the towns. And the whole procedure covered a period of three months. And it was a restructuring process and was done with great thoroughness and much prayer. So we can we want to pray for revival and long for revival by all means. But there's also reformation where we can, by our own initiative, see where we are out of line with God, whether it's personally or corporately and take steps, put things in line so that we can follow them anew or afresh. So we don't have to wait for revival in order to, to change our lives for the glory of God. We can make reforms in that. So, yeah, we are in, I think, a lot of people feel desperate today in light of the course that our nation is on. And we should pray for revival by all means, because it's going to take an outpouring, an unexpected outpouring of the mercy of God and the Holy Spirit to change this course. And, of course, the power of prayer as well to change the course. But in the meantime, God's people can do what? We can reform ourselves. We can reform the church if necessary. One of the problems with Israel here is this. They were called to be the people of God specifically. They were to separate from those that did not have the law of God and the covenant promises. So there's a distinction. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school, the commonwealth of Israel. 
They were they were pleasured to have the ways of God. And God asked them to live according to that so that they could stand out in the world as a light for the people of God. And the lines were to be very, very clear. But because they were steeped in this sin, the line between church and world, it was blurred. I mean, they were they were the people of God, but yet they did the things of the world. And so it just was not a good scene. And they were not the people that God had called them to be. I think in today's church, the lines are just too blurry. I mean, we still have churches. We still have powerful churches. We still have committed Christians. But we also have uh, many of us or the church makes decisions to do things in the world to make it not so clear what kind of Christian we are. It makes it not so clear what it means to live for Christ. We're refusing to make those separations that are necessary in order for us to actually be here in the world's there. That's the way it's supposed to be. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are a culture within a culture. And when the world's culture violates this culture, that's when we have to say, no, we've got to separate ourselves. If it's if it's pleasing to the Lord or innocent, that's fine. But when the world's culture violates this culture, we have to make clear the line and separate ourselves so that the world knows the difference. And so that our children and other believers know the difference. The lines are so blurred today. It would be nice to pray about ways that we can reform our lives, ways that perhaps we've compromised. So that it's not a mystery. What does it even mean to be a Christian? Some people don't even know because of the witnesses of Christians around them. They don't see any difference whatsoever. They do life the exact same way. Perhaps they keep it private. Reformation. Perhaps we need a reformation personally or as a church. Things that we need to just put into place. How much do we love God? How noticeable is it? How noticeable is it that we... Organize our lives around God's holy book. How noticeable is it that we go to God with all our problems and not just go to God with our problems, but we go to him with hearts filled with gratitude for all the blessings and the good things that happen to us. How noticeable is Christ in our life? God has called us so that it is very noticeable. He wants everybody to see it. Not this blurred thing like not. Nearly Christian, but clearly Christian. And then lastly, won't spend much time on this point. It's really I just something I just want to point out. The passage continues and they actually name the people that had violated. They name the people with intermarriages. But then verse 44 says this. All these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. Messy, messy sin. That's what I called it. Because now relationships are intended for you to interweave your lives together. That, that's what they do. It's, it's one of the purposes of relationship. And of course, ultimately marriage is to been, be so intermingled that you, the two become one. But in other relationships in this world, it's an intermingling of lives, thoughts, pleasures. And now because they, they, these, they came together as family and, and married couple, 
It has to be separated and it's going to be so painful. I mean, I'm guessing that children will be ripped out of their father's arms, crying, screaming. It's great agony and great pain that has to take place because of this separation in order to be obedient to God. It's so, so messy. But it wasn't so hard to get into that situation, was it? just kind of happened naturally, kind of seemed like maybe the right thing to do, or at least something they wanted to do. And there's a principle there. It's often easier to depart from God than to return to him. And so just as a closing thought, you know, we have a lot of decisions to make in life. uh, What teams we're going to join, what clubs we're going to join, where we're going to work, what kind of business partnerships we're going to get in, what kind of friends we're going to have, boyfriend, girlfriend, what kind of spouses we're going to have. And Scripture warns us constantly, be smart about who you intermingle with. Be smart about who you decide to, to be connected with and loyal to and committed to. Be smart about these things. Because they wear heavy on our souls. And once you're in, it's very difficult to get out. But by the grace of God, no matter what we have committed, we can repent of it because of the sacrifice of Christ And from this day forth, live right with God in the graces of God. There is always hope for the people of God. May God bless the preaching of his word.